I mean, in the fall, we'll do, you know, weighted glute ham uh, eccentric drops. I mean, essentially a Nordic. But if that was the key for being fast and performance, Sue would have a hard time with 15 kilos. And I would put my female long jumper on there and she's knocking out 35 kilos, like nothing. And the guys are just staring at her like, what are you made of? Because we can't do that. And yet one could run. 11.6, the other can run 10.0. That was Randy Huntington, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual results of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. They've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into Airbands. SimplyFaster.com also has B-Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode. I've had the good fortune of having Randy Huntington, track and field coach, on over the last several months, uh, twice. And Randy has had phenomenal success uh, in his recent years as the national track and field coach for the Chinese Athletics Association. Amongst other great successes that Randy has had, Randy has coached Su Bingqian, who is the Asian record holder in the 100-meter dash, and en route to that 9.84-second record-breaking uh, run, Su actually covered uh, an estimated 40-yard dash uh, as per NFL combine timing specs in around 4.08 seconds, so basically blowing away the uh, NFL combine record. And over the last couple shows, Randy has been going into detail on some of the methods behind Subing Chan and, and then Randy's training group, what they're doing for speed and power outputs and so much great information. I've gotten such good feedback on those shows and people have had a ton of questions about uh, Randy's work. And so this show is an awesome opportunity, uh, not only to get Randy back on again, but also to hear what you guys uh, wanted to hear from him. So what questions did you have for Randy? I put out a call for questions on social media. Got a ton back. Sorry, we didn't. Um, the show, even though it's an hour and a half long, we were not able to get through all of them, but we were able to get through many. And some of the common themes that Randy will be answering to your questions will be traditional strength methods for speed and power development, Randy's specific speed training workouts. So, what does he specifically like for acceleration, specifically like for maximal velocity? And then, what does that look like over a period of weeks? He'll be talking about coaching relaxation and sprint technique. And he'll also be talking about the ever-debated Nordic hamstring exercise. What is his take on that? And he'll be talking about his thoughts on hamstring injury prevention training in general. 
You'll get this and much more in this wonderful question and answer episode. It was great to have Randy back on, and I'm sure you guys will really enjoy hearing his answers to all the questions that were put out. Let's get on to the show. Randy, welcome back to the show. It's it's awesome to have you back. I've had the good fortune of been able, being able to have you on two times recently in the recent months. And I know I've had a lot of questions still for you coming off of those last shows. And I know a lot of other coaches out there have as well. So I'm excited to get you these questions today. And thanks for being back. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, it's it's always good when we do these that it, it produces questions because then everybody, that means people are actually one, paying attention, and two, are looking at how to solve problems that they have. And that helps, you know, when they ask these questions, it helps all of us think about potential solutions. And and there, and I, there is not one person who has all the answers to this, that's for sure. So as we go through some of these questions that you're, you're going to ask me, be prepared for me to say, I'm not sure, or I don't know, or I can't be for sure. And part of that comes back to Joel, what we talked about in the very first session, I believe, when I was referring to the fact that much of what we end up doing as you get a little bit older in this is pretty intuitive. You know, you, you, you understand and feel it. You sometimes may not understand why you feel it. It's very difficult to, to get that across. You don't have to have everything written specifically in stone. It just sometimes is. And you know it's right. And sometimes you don't have some science for that. Science tells you later on why it's right. So it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah, something I've been thinking about lately is I had a, a post on my social media and it was basically like the idea of developing your intuition. And in my reference was actually having a part of the training session that you didn't write out ahead of time just to force you to use. I mean, not just like, you're going to do the whole week off the cuff and just make it up as you go. But just having, just giving yourself some room to have to use intuition and have to synthesize something that you didn't just read off a page and <laughs> realizing that the answers are a little bit deeper than just surface level, yes or no, or do this exercise type thing. And they are always deeper. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's I'm not going to say this in the wrong way, but it's kind of like dating. You know, as you get older, you know, and when you're younger, you have this big list of things you want to find in someone. As you get older, that list gets very small, but really definite, you know? So it's like, kind of have to have these qualities, this, this particular quality or this thing, like for me to be a smoker, sorry, can't, no smoking, you know, <laughs> things like that. So in training, you start to get down to the, the, the least common denominators and, Particularly, as you've heard me state before, when you're coaching in a foreign language in which neither party has access to the other language, you do get down to the common truths. And uh, same thing, I think, happens when you're coaching junior high. You know, that's a great place in which to learn the common truths of your sport because you can't complicate it. You've got to have it simple. Yeah. I love that. It was, um, and we'll, we'll get these questions here. Just uh, one more thing that that had me think of that I thought was interesting is Jeremy Frisch uh, in a recent recording was talking about some NFL or high college level coach uh, ended up this. There was a, some competition where that high level coach had to take a youth team, like a bunch of, I don't know if it was like 10, 12 year olds and played another youth team. And 
this pro coach got his team's butt kicked <laughs> when, when he you know went to training youth. And I just think it's so like, uh, yeah, I, I'm always, that's just one kind of phase I'm in is just seeing how important it is to be able to train different populations and things like that and getting to the core of, of how do you train a person or, you know, even watching my children play with uh, the neighbor's dog, you know, I was thinking, well, could you, you can, how, how do you interact with an animal, you know, and, and you can't even use words and then kids and general that's principles, right. and then you go kind of up the chain from there. Well, one of the first, one of the books I, I bought and I looked at years and years and years ago was, of course, dog training. We, we, when I was growing up, we had a kennel and we trained dogs. And then later on, I looked at the book called The Horse Whisperer, which the movie was, was based on. And there's a lot in those books that, that can tell you about how to coach, you know, and, and particularly when you're starting out with somebody new. And, and, and a lot of times you don't have the answers that you want to bring this person to the point you know they need to get to. But intuitively, you get on a path and that path takes you someplace you're you're wondering where did that come from how did i know that and it's interesting it's fun to do it's fun to let your mind open up enough to to reveal those pathways to your intuitive self yeah that's awesome you know i i had <laughs> i've been thinking like i was just thinking a couple of days ago and it might have been in lieu of watching my children play with the dog was i've i've thought about having a a guest on this podcast at some point that like trains horses and I, in my mind, I'm like, I would love that. But I'm like, I don't know how many people are going to be interested in that, unfortunately. But it's like, now, you know, people like you telling, say, hey, learn about animals, learn the basic levels of interaction, you know, that, that even go, are even more foundational than words. And so it gives me yeah, more motivation I mean, to get to you know, a podcast it, like that. You know, yeah, for me, I, you know, I started out of Western Michigan where we had Psych 101, which was back then was psychology class that was all based on conditioning you know you condition you know it's back to training the rats in the lab and you know we we, we did that and we we learned psych 101 george god i just forget george's name um that's horrible anyways famous professor he's now passed away but it was a real start to well at one level dehumanizing <laughs> the human but at another level getting to the basics of how you get people to motivate people mm -hmm. to get to do something they may not want to do Well, they want to do, but they may not want to do what it takes to do, you know? So it's yeah. always, uh, it's, it's always good to go back to those basic things and, and to understand that some things you were learning in a classroom in college has no meaning to you until years later you go, Oh my gosh, there's that tension I was looking for and you pull it back in and it's there for you. And that's why I think liberal arts education can be very, very uh, provocative to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I could talk to you about this like level of coaching forever, but mm -hmm. I got, I got so many questions <laughs> from coaches, uh, Randy, and I'm, I'm excited to see how many we can get through. I, you know, you sure. mentioned like mm -hmm. Some of these answers with being able to get a definitive answer. I know the first question's a brain buster. <laughs> um, so, and there are a few people asked this, but it was Coach Hughes and someone else said basically, if you didn't have access to a seated Kaiser and just, you know, context people who didn't hear the last ones use the seated Kaiser to assess the lower leg power outputs, how would you assess or train calf and foot strength? You, you couldn't 
<clears throat> really assess the uh, soleus by itself, which is what the seated calf is doing. But you know, you could use another seated calf, mass-based seated calf device, although you're still stuck at the speed of gravity and it's pretty slow, which is not necessarily a bad thing. What you could do is do mass elastic combination. And, but you have to figure that one out because it's rough and um, you still aren't going to have power output, but you could potentially throw a VMAX pro or something on there and come up with some rough idea of what you're getting is even if it's not perfect, it would, if it's consistent and fairly reliable, then you could, you could utilize something else within the arm of the machine or whatever it may be to set a standard for improvement uh, in the, in a seated calf. You have to do the seated calf to get the soleus. So you can't do it any other way. Just the way it, way it is. I'm like laughing in my head, thinking about being at kind of like the planet fitness type gym. And you have the V max pro on the end of a seated calf and are like trying to blast, <laughs> blast out reps. I just, it's yeah. kind of funny, but I, I think that's awesome. I think whoever's <laughs> out there with it, you know, should, um, should try that and report post, post your, uh, VMAX Pro on social media with the seated calf and <laughs> see what numbers you come up with. Yeah, I mean, you throw a VMAX Pro on the end on the bar, you know, where you have to wait and just get a little stand and throw your iPad up there or your phone and, and watch it. And if you do it with mass, you're going to see uh, different results than if you did it with air. And you're going to see a different result than if you did it with mass and elastic. Now, you know, your, your soleus is very strong, but for most people, it's quite weak weaker than it should be so elastic you could you might even only need 25 a 15 kilo band because you're going to have to roll it over once or twice mm. get, put it under the stand or something and bring it back up and attach it you know 15 25 20 uh, you, you can people can play with it but that's the only other way you could get close to what it's what what you get with the kaiser city calf cool yeah i'll i'd be interested yeah. makes sense um yeah, you really can't get around that air power. I'm kind of thinking in my head too of like you were talking about the Kaisers. They almost like throw you down in a way or something like that. Like the air power it accelerates you faster than gravity. Uh, so I'm like, well, could you have some like pushing down the seat? <laughs> like lightweight, just like uh, throwing it down. It not it just uh, it doesn't sort of it does. And uh, and actually, I've had a few coaches who just and I need to make this clear now. Kaiser has an eccentric. <laughs> A very powerful eccentric. I've had coaches say, you know, Kaiser's good, but there's no eccentric to it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? Have you been on one? It's eccentric can be incredibly powerful. And it's, uh, yeah, so we need to make that clear. Kaiser is a concentric, eccentric device. So it's not like a hydraulic piece, which is concentric, concentric. And people confuse the view of a cylinder and think it's hydraulic and it's not. It's pneumatic. Cool. Next question here is from Derek Hansen. And uh, he asked yeah, um, your <laughs> thoughts on um, this. Is, this could be like the whole show here. So we might have to narrow it down. But like thoughts on your approach to strength and resistance training for sprinting and speed development. I I guess if I put my uh, narrowing spin on it, just to get through some more of the other questions, um, I would say, could you maybe specifically address one, uh, lifting without the, like if you don't have Kaiser, like what's the, what's the next best? And two, you know, it's been people, I mean, people will debate 
just different little things till the end of time. But your take on Olympic lifts, I think it's int- and maybe Olympic lifts in different populations, like even team sports. I mean, obviously, if you have a Kaiser, right? Like, isn't that so much simpler? But so I'd be curious on strength if you don't have a Kaiser. And then uh, thoughts on the Olympic lift specifically versus like a hex bar jump or something else in the program. Well, that's a, that's a big question. Really big question. Yeah. And Derek asked really big questions and good ones. So my take on strength training, and let's just say in track and field for a little bit, I try not to do too hard a strength training until people are able to execute the technical component I want them to execute. Unless that technical component, of course, desires strength or is needed in order to, for it to, to, to happen. So I don't, I don't look at strength training initially as a way to create anything because I want them to first get their body able to move through the positions, through the actions that are necessary to execute it properly. Then we start adding strength onto that. And, you know, we could go into all kinds of systems, for gosh sakes. There's so many out there. I basically have for years either do a tri or a quad system, very similar probably to what Minnesota used to do. Um, I'm still a little bit of old school probably, but it's worked for so many years. You know, where I'll I'll do a, a heavy lift or a medium lift, followed by a heavy lift, followed by a light lift followed by an unloaded lift, you know, unloaded movement. So I'm moving through the spectrum of speed in, in, in three to four different lifts. And I'll do two circuits of that, meaning two different styles of that per session. And, and that's kind of the gist of, of, of what we're doing. We get very strong, but we get very fast and powerful too. So to answer your question about the Olympic lifts, you know, when you look at the Olympic list, the time frame, it really only affects us in the, in the very, very beginning of the start coming out of the blocks, for instance. After that, it's just remarkably slow compared to everything else we do. This is why your, your conversation with Rolf Ullman is going to be pretty vital, I think, to start to understand some of the things. And I'm leaving that up to Rolf to do because... We can get into a series of definitions here that would confuse everybody. And you do need to kind of have that done by itself so that people start to rethink what we're doing in the weight room. I've used Kaiser, as you know, since 1983. It's part of my DNA. It sets us apart, did set us apart um, because nobody else was using it. You know, now uh, Rain is using it and a few of the other elite coaches are. Tanja Buford's using it down in Texas with her group there. And, and there's going to be more. I just think that we misunderstand. We still interpret power as force only. And, you know, although for years for in my world, for years, we've known power is not just force. But I think it still happens more often than not, mostly because we haven't had very effective ways to test it and, and i think force platforms are obviously a great way to to go through testing some of these something that you can do you know we 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 we, we did we do what's called a uh, drop squat with the kaiser squat and we'll have 200 220 kilos on that 
and we basically drop down into a squat position. So we bring our feet off the ground and we drop in. Then we have this incredibly eccentric hold, but we turn it right around fast. And the amount of power involved in changing the direction of the 200 kilos, 200 kilos of air is amazing. And it's so much more than mass alone, so much more. And when you do the same thing with mass and air together, the amount of power you're producing is so much greater than mass alone or air alone, let's say, with a bar. So the, the two together give you the best blend on, on, let's say, a Kaiser half rack or Kaiser rack. And we, we do spend a lot of time in that world, uh, air mass combination. And, you know, you could, you could have a good discussion with University of Indiana uh, strength coach who was at Michigan, Aaron Spellman, Wellman. You could have a good discussion with Aaron about, how, well, how he discovered this back when he was at Michigan and what his thoughts were. And he would be better at the team sports side than I am just because he's, he's had more opportunity. Cool. Yeah, I know that could be a question that we, that there's like infinite ways to go with that question. So I'll, I'll just leave that it there because I know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of other ones. Really big question. And, and it would take a while to answer it. I know that tomorrow they're doing the exact same question in uh, another group dealing with uh, 400 meter training. And I'm, I can't be on that call, but it's, it's a great, it's a great question. And, 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 and like I said, Derek is always looking for the answers and I really appreciate uh, the questions he does ask. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free, you do pay a few dollars shipping, but you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free uh, along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, uh, next one. So kind of not the opposite, but it's all related. But example, Cody Bidlow uh, is asking for, and he has three of them. So I think I'll, I might, in light of time, I'll shoot you two of these. But uh, example, speed and speed endurance sessions. I'm sure this like could be all over the place. So maybe this like training max velocity or acceleration with some different groups. If you just want to go through a few of your like kind of favorite sets, the way you like to kind of lay that out for athletes. Well, in acceleration, typically we're, we're doing resisted followed by unloaded. So my basic pattern is heavy sled, you know, 50% of body weight or higher. And then on to 1080, in which we're using maybe 15 to 20% body weight, and then unloaded after that. And right in, you know, we'll be right in the blocks and we'll go. Now, as you're doing that, they're going to be a little slow for a while because they have to adapt to all that work. 
And, but we're really not so, I'm not so worried about time or all that. I'm really doing that to work on block clearance, first four steps, basically. And then, and then, then the rest of it comes later. So that's, that's how I start with acceleration. Uh, if I have a hill, I'll do a hill initially to prepare the legs a little bit, a fairly steep hill, rel- relatively short, 15 meters or, or so. And then there's, we're, we're, there's this debate, and, and uh, you know I answered it in my own head a long time ago, but there's speed endurance, and then there's enduring speed. So a lot of what I do with 100 meters is we endure speed, which means we get to max velocity and try to maintain max velocity as long as we can. So we're playing a lot in the 60 to 80 meter range, 85 meters, 90 meters. We're trying to get to that max velocity point and then hold that velocity as long as we can in a relaxed manner and whatever we can. Obviously, you can see Sue's face. His body's relaxed, but his face isn't. And you could make a case for that might be okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, In his case, you don't. But uh, he still hasn't figured that out. And we're working on it. And I'm hoping by this year, I was hoping last year I'd get it. I mean, he ran 983 Titus. You you can see how tight he was, but, and, but he was relaxed through that 629. And so he needs to, he thinks, and it's, it's a problem when you're doing max velocity training, he thinks to go faster and to relax means to slow down. And that's not what we're saying. And it's really hard to do in another language. And I want to go backwards for a second. I've brought this up before, but I want to just make a point when it comes to Derek's thoughts there. And that is, You've heard me say this. I've stopped using the word jump training, plyometric training, or myometric training, whichever you may choose, and have gone to strictly to bounce training. You know, mm-hmm. bouncing off the ground, being reactive. I know some people use reactive. It doesn't work well in other languages, but it bounce works really well. It's easy to see, demonstrate, and the word works. Okay, back to speed endurance. So then after that, you have what is an energy system wise, you're in a different, you're moving into a different energy system anyways. So a good part of what we do is a lactic endurance. And then we'll get into glycolytic short speed endurance. So we go from ASSC to GSSC. And then after that, then we're in, right into lactate energy system training. And, you know, what, what distance do you need to have to do that? And if you're lucky, you can actually test somebody and kind of figure out where they, they make that transfer. And if not, then you kind of guess like the rest of us do, and you do what the ex phys books and all the training manuals show, and you start looking at those three hundreds and four fifties and five hundreds, and depending on the event, one fifties, one eighties, two hundreds, two forties. We use a bunch of different distances. Um, we do a twenty second run, a forty second run. Some people do twenty second run, fifteen second, and then they'll do a forty five second run. I used to do 45 second runs for years, a distance that you run in it. I do use the Cosman test and the 800 and 1500 meter kids. I found it may not be a great predictor, but it's a great workout. And it's a great session to use if you can't compete. So you, you throw it in because they got to, they run, let's say at 800, they run, you know, two 400s and as far as they can go in 60 seconds. And then they take a rest and they do it again. That's a pretty good workout, yeah. you know, and it, it it's it's not easy. And 
someone like Chun Yu, Charlie, the 800 meter runner, she started out 811 meters. By the end of the year, she was 866 meters. Wow. Yeah, she improved 50 meters plus. And, and that's a, that's, no, that probably won't happen to her again, but that's a sizable improvement, needless to say. Yeah. And that, that, that predictor at 866, I think was 154.5 or something like that. You know, she ran 157, which is pretty much what you see. You see about a three second difference. Anyways, I'm a little off subject. Sure. No, so next question. No worries. Yeah. Actually, I'll, someone asked this, so I'll just bring it up in the list. I actually may not, not even have put this on the list. I know someone asked it. And so I'll, I'll tie this into what you talked about, top speed, Sue relaxing. Uh, I'd like to ask you uh, maybe two questions here. So with the top speed, one is how do you go about teaching or communicating relaxation? And then two, what's your thoughts? Uh, someone asked this, uh, thoughts on wickets, mini hurdles. How do you uh, or even cones on the ground, sticks, like, so those two things, relaxation, and then any sort of, um, like, constraint where there's a stick or something on the ground. Well, I use, I use mini hurdles. I tend to use mini hurdles mostly, but I will use cones if I have a real problem with recovery mechanics in somebody. The, one of our, one of the big issues is that you get too high in your mini hurdles, you force yeah. a high heel recovery. And that, that's, that's an issue. So, 12-inch mini hurdles, I rarely, if ever, use. Nine-inch on a, re- on a relatively tall person, we mostly use six-inch mini hurdles. I start them out at 0.5, uh, you know, or 50 centimeters to 75 centimeters. And we use a bar overhead or out in front, hands on hips, different variations of anything but letting the arms work so that they have to just let the, the legs do what they do. And then we start teaching initially just a step step down uh reacceleration of the thighs so we we look at at trying to establish a cross extensor reflex what does it feel like to step down feel the force in the ground and how that creates the reflex of the leg up so we'll start very short and just slowly work our way out because i want to make sure that they understand how to get that big engine that they're blessed with working as well as it should so for me, it's all about getting that butt working and making sure it works. Then the second part to that is once you get it, the force into the ground, and you got to bounce off the ground and controlling that bounce, because that's the other side of the reflex action, is controlling that bounce upward and forward and not letting that heel pop up into your butt from behind, mm-hmm. but instead let it pop up and forward so that you rarely get much above parallel a parallel shin in your in your max velocity mechanics a little bit but but you try not to get too much and and that's a that's a big deal and and it's very difficult to do so with the the relaxation element i mean what do you actually cuz cuz Cody also asked i mean maybe this could fit in with this question i think this is a really interesting one that i I'd, I'd be asking you as well but like cuz people talk about this with max velocity is do you have athletes really run 100% versus like 90%? Like when you're actually training max speed, I look at it sometimes the same way as weightlifting. Like, are you going to go in and do 100% versus how relaxed are you? What are you looking for on the times on the given session in terms of their maximal abilities? Uh, how do you go about that spectrum of things in top end? Well, one, we do do our flying 30s at 100% when we're testing. And then I use a percent off of that. I rarely go above 95 Sometimes I'll sneak to a 98 
percent when we're doing relay work and and on occasion i'll go 100 percent during the relays as well because if you don't you end up screwing it up over on the track later on a good part of our speed work after we establish technical models and we're we're functioning and we're performing well is we'll, we'll be in ins and outs uh, and so we're we're learning how to contract hard and then relax and through the relaxation you get more you get faster and 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 that's how the one of the best ways for an athlete to learn even even kids could do that you know once they once they figure it out so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of the simple way to go about it. You know, with the mini hurdles or any kind of barrier training, that's always done with relaxation as much as possible. So that's why we take and we use tools to stop the arms from working. And we talk about the jaw and we talk about their breathing and we go through the, the dynamics of the motion. and then. Then we bring the arms back in and see exactly how well they're able to execute everything with the whole upper body running in a relatively relaxed fashion. You know, and, and, and you look back at some of the great sprinters and most of them ran pretty relaxed. I think if Sue ran relaxed, he's probably a 975, 978 guy somewhere right in there. Uh, with the arms. So... Uh, do you feel like when you, I think about like degrees of freedom and you take the arms basically out in whatever, I mean, they're still in it, but they're not, it's, it's a thing that's not moving anymore. Do you feel like that if you're working with athletes who need to be a little bit more relaxed in their upper body in general, by taking the arms out through whatever constraint that actually allows them to focus more on being able to relax, such as if they were actually swinging their arms and moving them, it, that might be too many things going on to learn to relax a little bit more. Or what's your thoughts on that? Uh, it's mixed because it, it, it is very individualized. That one is. Mm -hmm. There's so many different arm lengths and upper upper arm lengths and lower arm lengths, so many different ratios. But I do like to take them out. I still like to take them out of the picture. Uh, I think it's important to do that. I think it, t it tells the body, oh, I, I got to figure this out now. I got to figure out how to run. Because you can be a little tense in, in, in the upper body. And still be learn to be relaxed in the lower body. It ain't perfect, but you can do it. And um, I would prefer to see the lower jaw relax. And there's a whole lot of research that's gone into what's happening with, you know, head positioning, lower jaw, all the muscles of the neck, and that, and how that affects what's going on in the posterior chain and and front. So there's a, a lot of science there that takes a little sitting down to figure it out. The jaw appears to be the secret, and if you if if you watch Jacobs, he is the best in the world right now at relaxing and running fast, without a doubt. Kids really good at it. Coleman also. So in terms of drills, you know we'll do in mirror arm drills where we're looking at very aggressive arms, not so aggressive. We'll pull the exogen on. So we can feel the arms, feel them aggressive, feel them not so aggressive. There's a few other things that you can do with kids particularly, but I like using a, a weighted bar, not very heavy, 2K, 3K, because it, it then, if you put that out in front of you and hold it overhead or out in front of you, 
it does bring into play all the muscles of the upper back, lower back, and it makes those things tighten up and, and have to function. And you got to figure out how to do this with those tight. And, and you feel that isolated component of what needs to move and what doesn't need to move. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely definitely makes sense with like yeah how those constraints are going to cause different muscular adaptations or just different. I always feel like too when the, with some of the no arms things, especially if the arms, it's a little bit harder I think when they're overhead. But I I do think about how when you take the arms out, if they're like, I don't see this done often. But like if you put your arms behind your back and had someone bound, like you have to see their spine. Their spine now has to figure out how to how to work a little bit more. You know, if you have someone who's just like super rigid when they they move and things like that. That's been something I've been considering the last couple of years. But I, it is interesting how that, yeah, like you said, it makes the legs work more as well. Like you have to, you're passing the emphasis down to a different part of the body. Yeah, and and, and that's your and your goal is to try to selectively let the body figure out, let the body figure it out mm-hmm. how it's going to adapt itself to do the right things. You mentioned this, Randy, and I, I think this is interesting. So you mentioned. Because this doesn't get talked about often. You mentioned time, like as, as opposed to distance. I mean, because I mean, almost everyone <laughs> loves to use distance. It's almost like that's how we're wired is run this far. How, you know, it, maybe it's more finite and maybe that's why people like it. But I love like the idea of just a time and how far did you go? I know Chris Corfist and Tony Holler and they have 23 second runs. And, and I've, I've thought about like, it's just different mentally too. Like, do you, how would that like fit in your program in the sense, like, would you alternate like biweekly, like every other week it's for time or like, how do you split the, the time up with the distance? Uh, and then how do you think that the athlete reacts to that mentally? Uh, what are some, some like programming considerations when you're actually going to put in time versus a distance? Well, I use time strictly for testing with the sprinters. So we'll do the timing, timed runs every you know, four weeks or so, six weeks, whatever it may be during the time of the year. And then, of course, with the distance and middle distance people, I use time rather than distance. So time at task mm. uh, for them. So for, for the 20 second and 23 second, whatever thing is that you want to use, I do that as a test. So it's a consistent testing system throughout rather than not rather than, but in addition to, I mean, I, I keep the 150 as a timed thing. Like, well, how fast are you in your 150? I know what it means. I think every coach has their own little quirks and experiences that they've come become comfortable with. And I'm not going to say that anyone is right or wrong because, quite frankly, once you become comfortable with it and it is a way to assess improvement, by all means, as long as you're you're assessing the right improvements, you know, the test assesses the right things, then by all means, use it. Who am I to say that it's right or not? I mean, as, as Brooks Johnson just mentioned the other day, along with uh, another coach, he said, you know, if you're not in the huddle, you don't really know what the play is. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's right. I mean, who knows? I mean, if you, I mean, it's just it's such a simple fact, you know, we're, we're all, we can all be, I've done it. I continue to do it at times. I catch myself, you know, we're very critical of other coaches. We look at people, look how bad they run and yeah, he's not a good coach. And, uh, you know, the fact is you just don't know mm-hmm. what the things, the, the problems are. 
there are some common truths if you don't see changes. And if you haven't coached at that level, which both Brooks and I always agreed on that, that, you know, if you're not coaching an elite hundred meter guy, you might not yet understand how to coach a hundred meter guy, you know? And, and there's things, I mean, if you were to stand in a conversation with coaches, you might just go, what in the heck is he talking about? Because you don't know how they have to get to that kid. And it could be completely contrary to what you might imagine. And that's the freedom of coaching and the art of coaching and the way you try to do your best to communicate with somebody what they need to learn. And that's an awkward thing at best any, anyways, hmm. because you're, you're trying to teach something that is really uncomfortable. I mean, max velocity mechanics are not normal. They're not. <laughs> they're, they're just not, you know. You're going to have to, it's going to take you a few years to get somebody to really get that stuff right. Got it. I did want to ask you, so you had mentioned like you'll you'll get a 30 meter test, like speaking of testing, and I like how you split that up too. Um, I always am thinking with the, the way that the, the, the run is framed to the athlete is also something mental, like you could have a more of a chance or more chances for personal bests or a different, like from a principal's perspective, it could be a different, you know, test to utilize if you felt like the athlete wasn't going to do very well at like a set distance or something. I could go for time instead and just kind of cycle around to frame their perception. I did want to, or if you had any comments on that, I also wanted to ask you just to confirm, like, so you get that 30 meter test and then for the next several weeks or whatever, you would run like, all right, we're going to hit about 95%. Like you're not trying to PR on the fly every week is I guess what I'm trying to say. That no, no, no. I, I do. I, I actually only test the 30 meter test at most every six weeks, okay. but usually every two, every two months. Because then, I, I mean, it, first of all, it's going to take them a while to make the changes. They're probably not going to get that much faster in that time frame. I do use weight training to hold them back more than I do running to hold them back to keep them from peaking. So my weight room is a little bit more important. So testing, you know, in a block of training, if you wish to use the term block in a cycle, you're going to be using that testing time to determine all the rest of your times for some period of time until they adapt. And then you can kind of tell when they're adapting because they'll start just stabilizing their times in training. And then it's time to retest. and get back after it. I like what you mentioned, because um, I think it, that runs counterintuitive to a lot of people is weight training to hold them back in the sense of you know, a lot of people would be like, oh, well, do you want them to be the fastest they can every week? You know, like, but, but having gone through track and field and seasons, you know, it's like, then you get it just the, the same way that you said, you know, if you haven't coached hundred meter runners, like when you have, you coach athletes for the whole season, you understand that it's almost like you're, you're giving them somewhere to go with that. I too, I was going to ask, what's your thoughts on the same thing with like, I mean, obviously we don't, junk running is never a good idea, but like the same thing for like tempo, like using tempo or fitness circuits for the same purpose, or is it more like you're thinking of the weightlifting from that perspective? Well, no, well, no, I, the tempo I use for recovery. I, oh yeah. Okay. Um, oh, you mentioned that last time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and same thing with general strength and I'll actually have a, you know, a, I'll throw in a seven or 10 day cycle of general strength tempo work along the way just to let them come back up. Mm. And then we'll test, we'll test not the first day, but we'll test the second day after coming off of the regeneration cycle. So I build in a regeneration cycle and, 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 and they have to have it, but we're in the pool every day. Anyways, you know, if we're in the pool or sauna, we're, we're, we're trying 
to do some pretty uh, aggressive recovery. By aggressive, I don't mean intense. I mean, you're just doing it, you know, and, and that has helped every athlete that I've worked with, all of them that get over 28 years of age, they, you know, they, they just love the pool and some don't like water, but they love the pool and, and what it does to their bodies and how they feel. I mean, you put a football player in the pool after a game, it's a completely different guy the next day. If you do it for two days, they're going to be pretty happy because by Thursday, you're going to have a game again on Sunday or Saturday or Friday night, whatever. By that time period, that, that two or three day regeneration while they're coming back, they're going, their bodies are going to feel so much better than they had prior to that. So I mean, I think it's across the board from Gretzky to Eller to Armstrong to uh, Kirby, all these guys I coach, you know, worked with in the, back in the day in football and hockey and basketball across the board. Like I wish I'd known about this when I was 21, 22 years old because it would have changed my career. Yeah. It's, it is interesting to me, like the, uh, <laughs> I'm, this is, I'm like almost the worst person to administer all these questions. Cause I just get <laughs> I'm like, I can't just go down the list. I'm like, I have to keep I'm like, what about this? But I, I do find it interesting. Cause I think that the, I think it's a lot more common, at least on the high school level, as per my perception that, you know, if people are using fly sprints, they just, kids go as fast as they can every week. And it seems like sprinters are wired to want to do that. You know, it's like the same way, almost like, you know, te- you could say teenage boys, they're on bench press. They want to max, max out every time they go in, which, you know, we obviously, sure. we want a bit like, sure. that's almost like the instinct. Right. And so how do you frame, like, how do you still motivate athletes for that session in the sense of, it's in very inherently motivating if like I'm running the fly and I want to PR this week. Like, yeah. Like how do you keep them motivated or, or how do you frame that session when it's like, no, it's like, it's 95%, you know, it's, it's X amount of reps. Like what do you, how do you keep that or put that in perspective when that desire or drive is probably going to be, yeah, I want to see how fast I am today, you know? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't be doing it every week because that's just a recipe for hamstring injuries. And of course, at the same point, you're doing it every week in high school anyways, because yeah. your preseason's about three weeks long and then you're you gotta meet. Yeah, two meets know? a week and or whatever. Let's right? go. You're still you're still and of course, the time. Yeah, and of course all the meets are well, all the meets are regular distances. They're not shortened unless you're you know, you've got a very wise initial relay competition that somebody's smart enough to, you know, shorten a hurdle race or shorten, you know do sixties instead of hundreds and, you know, do one fifties instead of the two hundreds just so people don't get hurt. But the problem is everybody's trying to qualify and they're trying to do mm-hmm. this and that. And it's like, and if they were doing this right, you know, you wouldn't be, first of all, you wouldn't be forcing the high school season to be ridiculously short in some States. I mean, in a state like Idaho, where I am, it is, I think their state meet is the second week in May. Heck, Wow. Some places during during certain years, you just got four weeks since you got the snow off the track. You know, I mean, you just don't have a lot of time. So it's it. There's the high school year, and and for guys that are successful at the high school level, you got to take their hats off to them because it is extremely difficult to do without getting a whole lot of people hurt. You know, it it, it is. You just have to. You can't sprint them as hard as you would an elite athlete. And we always have to be careful that when you ask me a question, I'm got my elite hat on and I got to take it off 
and rethink it because the worst mistake we can make is superimpose elite athlete training on youth, middle school or high school, for that matter, even college mm. in the first few years. Yeah, that's, it's definitely an interesting world. The high school track world is one that I have less experience in, but as I'm learning more about it, I'm like, man, this could be, yeah, it's, it's a really compressed situation. I do need to kind of keep rolling here because I got I have so many yeah. questions here. Uh, so Ryan Banta wants to know, how has your training evolved over the years? Has there ever been any like, you know, keystone moments where you're doing it a certain way and like, okay, now I'm going to shift over and, you know, evolving to a different direction. So how has your training evolved as a coach over the years? is not really much, to be honest. I was lucky enough to have pretty good mentors. And I started out, you know, in, in women's gymnastics. So probably the biggest change for me was discovering Kaiser. Weight training changed some, but I studied it a lot. <clears throat> in terms of the track, I'd say becoming more efficient at what the drilling means and making the drilling have more meaning and and being able to integrate the drilling into actual sprinting and figuring out how to do that. Although that was, that's an ongoing problem for every coach that lives. So I've always been of the mind to establish a technical model and condition the model. So that hasn't changed in me uh, since the beginning of my coaching. There haven't been many aha moments. I mean, you know, I was always kind of away from everybody else. In Winkler was in Florida and Illinois and Lauren and Dan were down at LSU and John was at UCLA and Bobby and a lot of the guys. And I was up in Oregon or away. And I was in Fresno or wherever it may be. And I was never really integrated into that, that whole scene. So I was free to do and find because I didn't run track. You know, so for me, it was my own observations and then pulling from various sources whether it was gymnastics, volleyball, dance, you know, my warm-up comes from Steve Suttich. I mean, good part of it from the UCLA volleyball uh, warm-up back in the 70s, early 70s. You know, they were the first ones doing a dynamic warm-up. It was amazing to watch. And that was, that was a, a pretty good aha moment, probably, if you had to take one. And I remember telling Steve this a few years back. He's in Portland. And I told him, I said, you know, I mean, the basis of my warm-up comes from UCLA volleyball and uh, doing a class with him, doing a seminar with Steve in the mid seventies. So running mechanics wise, obviously seeing what Lauren and Kevin did, you know, it makes you rethink things, listening to different people. Uh, and then of course, then you're developing your own thoughts and concepts tactically in within races, figuring out, you know, this, if you don't want to use the word drive phase, you don't have to, but acceleration drive phase and what it means and where it is and where you take it to and how you transition smoothly through the whole race. So there, you know, although you may teach it in parts, the race itself isn't in parts, that kind of thing. And I, and I, I don't know if that answers Ryan's question, but it's, uh, I've been pretty solid in the way that I've done things for a long time. And, what it's turned out to be is that people are catching up now. They're asking about Kaiser. They're asking about drills. And I mean, I've been using mini hurdles since the eighties, mm -hmm. you know, so it's not, 
this isn't new stuff for me. This is stuff I've done all along. Uh, you know, well, I would say with uh, Bowden, oh, I forget Bowden's last name. Bowden introduced me to the activator belt in Australia. That was a big moment. That was like, like Kaiser, understanding how to utilize the activator belts and how to make it work for me. He didn't know how I would use it, but I see things and, and I look. So when you ask that question, I look at the tools I use and go, how am I going to utilize that tool to help the athlete? And, and that's where it becomes fun and creative. You know, shuttle MVP, hex bars, safety squad bars, Kaiser, Kaiser racks, sleds, different, you know, exogen, different tools we've used along the way. That's probably been the biggest thing for me is the external tools that I've been able to get my hands on to help me evaluate what I'm doing and make me more accountable for what I'm doing with the athlete. Cool. Moving along here, try to knock this list out. Bob Ramsey asks, how do you teach acceleration mechanics to athletes who do not yet uh, have the lower leg strength or power to support more optimal acceleration patterns? A question. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. It's, you know, you're going to have to find some way to resist them. It can't be the same resistance as a heavy sled, but you can do a pulley system of some sort. You can use the sled with a little bit less weight with some kind of body support, somebody supporting them. You, you tend to find this mostly in more in really young men and, and young women. They just don't have the body strength yet. And of course, the simple answer is get them stronger, for God's sakes. And this is why I said earlier, sometimes you have to get strong in order to do the minimum, the, the mi minimum tactical model. And, uh, you know, this is where the Europeans are, were so far ahead of us early on and, you know, circuit training and general strength and all that. They were doing that with kids, you know, and we've lost PE in the school. Poor coaches today, they're getting kids <laughs> that just yeah. don't don't have the ability to do some basic things. Feel for them because it's not easy. Yeah, it's getting in the blocks is another issue. I tend to elongate the blocks before I shorten the blocks. I think giving them a higher or a greater knee thigh angle so that they can actually push and then be in a position where their legs can push. Will it slow them down a little bit for a while? It may, but that's okay. I mean, they're, you know, how many of the kids in a high school track team are going to college scholarship? And the ones that are going to probably go to get a college scholarship are probably going to be strong enough. And the ones that aren't, they're there to have fun and enjoy track and field. And that's exactly what you want them to do because you want them walking away with the memories of accomplishing things they didn't think they could accomplish. Okay, next question. So Elias Stahl asks, what is your procedure of gathering information to guide training decisions? Or what, I guess in other words, what key data points, and Elias asks, what key metrics are you using when you're gathering the data to guide your training process? Ooh, that's a big question. Yeah, just like the weightlifting one, right? <laughs> oh, Yeah. The simple answer is certain tests. Flying 30 is my big test. Acceleration 20 or acceleration 15. Uh, so I use those to determine. I still use the distance of the seventh step. I don't plan it, but I do want to know what it is. And then depending upon whether they're doing the appropriate mechanics before that, we'll take a look at how we make that 
we need to make that either grow or shorten depending upon how they are executing their first seven steps. So in metrics, I obviously I use FreeLab quite a bit. I use the Brower system. Uh, in the long jump, I still use the Brower. I don't use the FreeLab. We are using force platforms more now than we have that we didn't have them before. I use OptiJump for looking at that. I use obviously the sports science people, Dr. Ban, Dr. Ralph Ban back in the day. I used Yu Bing and Dr. Hay and the jumps and a few others that uh, would help out. Metrics, we, I used a sports psychologist, and you may not think of that as a metric, but it is for me. Use VMAX Pro, Gym Aware, Tendo, Kaiser in the weight room. So the key metrics, you know, are we look at, I still look at the squat and I look at the clean. Um, I don't look at the weight of the clean. I look at the power of the cleans creating. I do look at push jerks as well. And of course, on Kaiser, I'm getting power output in every lift anyways. So that's constant monitoring. And, and, the, and the guys get used to it too. So they're everybody, guys, by guys, I mean men and women, get used to being able to uh, see that and, and, and get after it. It creates a, a more motivated athlete when they, when they can see that power number. But uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, 20 second and 45 second test or 40 second test uh, depends on, I I'd actually do those two differently depending on the athletes, hundred guys getting the 40 and the 200 guys getting the 45. So whether that five seconds makes a big difference or not, who knows? It's just something I've kind of always done. And I, and I may not have a good answer for that. Sure. Sounds like, yeah, uh, I'd imagine that someone like Sue, a sprinter like Sue probably wouldn't like the 45 second test that much. <laughs> uh, no, he won't. He won't. He won't do it. I, I don't take him past the 20 second test. You know, he doesn't do the 40 second test. He just, there's just no reason for him to get that. The 20 is good enough for him. And in, and in his case, you know, we'll do time 150s, time 120s, time 90s for a speed endurance style test. So because he's only got to run 100 meters. Gotcha. With the, and, I would say quickly the flying test. Um, like I know fly tens is pretty co- common, and you use fly thirties. Do you feel like I mean, is that more the thirty, more the level of athlete that you're at? Like an elite, uh, would you use a shorter distance with younger athletes or people who aren't quite as fast? Or does that not really matter with what you're looking for? That? It's it's hard. I, I I know how it works with these guys because we we use a genoptic laser on them too, so I know where they hit their max velocities. And I want the test to be within that range. So, and I want them to be able to hold it a little bit. So for, for these guys, the majority of them are hitting their max velocity, somewhere between 45 and 60 meters, some a little bit past that. So we'll, we'll, we'll do an, a, a 30 meter acceleration, which is a standard that you can look up kind of around the world too. So you can look back and see what people were doing for their 30 meter acceleration times. And then the flying 30 becomes that ability to see your max velocity expressed a little bit longer i mean you have it a little bit more i would for younger yeah 10 meter and 20 meter uh, for sure they're just you do a i mean for the younger kids if we do a flying 30 we do 20 meter run in because they're already accelerated their their acceleration is so poor Mm -hmm. that they have already hit top speed by 20 meters you know in some cases but yeah i i see no problem with it and particularly if you've got years of data on it, why not? The chances with a younger person doing a flying 30 
injury potential goes up as you do a flying 30 as well. So you got to have a, a well-conditioned or a smart athlete who understands technically what to do. That's why I don't test flying 30 for quite a while uh, in the year. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, with the younger, go a little bit shorter for sure. So Dylan Rowe asks uh, your thoughts. I, I find this interesting because I saw this video and you know, we talked about assisted overspeed or whatever or not. Thoughts on that. And uh, Dylan Rowe asks, what are your thoughts on Marcel J- Jacobs, uh, the wind tunnel training? So running behind the the bike or the car the car with the windshield where he doesn't have any wind resistance. Thoughts on stuff like that? Well, I, I, mean, I think it's great. You know, I liked it the first time I saw it. And, you know, back in the old days, Tony Wells would pull people with his Volkswagen and, <laughs> you know, he had a bar attached to it and he'd pull them. And I think with the, the horse trailer back behind the car, it gives, it gives him the opportunity to run so relaxed and it's true. It's proven itself. And I like it. You know, you know, we've differentiated uh, assisted versus over speed. You know, I start assisted training at, the average velocity that they would achieve in hundred meters. So if they run 10 flat, they've their average at 10 meters per second. And then I move it up two to three meters per second. It's using the 1080 over time and, and not very, I mean, they get through the first part of it pretty quick because they have to be a little bit e- slower in their acceleration or they'll run out, they'll run out of it. But then we'll assist up to what we see as the maximum velocity they achieve in the in the race you know and it typically it's 11.5 to 11.8 meters per second faster for some um but there aren't many people going that over speed i i i tried it don't like it it scares me and the wheels are going to come off eventually if you're really if you're not careful with it so i'd rather use assisted speed and and slowly get on the towards that limit of pushing their speed now mind you as they go through the year they get faster and so your 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 assisted speed becomes faster as the year goes on um so i uh i use wind wind to their back you know that's one of the best over speed assisted speed things you can possibly do uh, just let them run with the wind and relax and and go uh, you look how fast they run because you, I can tell you when people get wind dated times, they're in over speed. Mm-hmm. They're over, they're in over speed. So go for it. Yeah. I think Hank Kryanoff, it's something like that. Like it's just the simplest form of over speed there is. It's almost like, I think it's funny. It's almost like we're always looking for the the tool, you know, the, the technology that will help us do something, which obviously there's great technology out there, you know, Kaisers and things, but like well wind is free it's not it's nature so nature is pretty you know you feel like there's probably a pretty natural response to nature versus if perhaps you're getting towed too fast right and you have to start to run unnaturally to deal with that it makes sense to me that yeah, that's I mean, a better way to do it if you're ever down in chula vista and it's three o'clock in the afternoon you can do overspeed training with wind really <laughs> you know now you just got a wind tunnel out there so that's why all the vaulters like to come come there and, and jump at three three p.m because <laughs> you just get this wind and it's perfect it's just a a beautiful wind and and it's wind is your friend if you can if you can use it it can be your enemy too obviously but most places in this country you end up with a windy day or windy days and you can utilize that wind very easily for doing assisted relaxed mm. sp- sprint training 
there was a video of I don't know how long, maybe ten years ago or whatever. Justin, <clears> they had, um, <throat> it was in Japan, I think. They they had Justin Gatlin running the hundred, and they had like huge wind turbines behind him. I think he ran like a nine three. Oh, yeah. I wish. Right. I, right. I was curious. I'd be curious to see the mechanics, you know, that he used relative to like at what point does it become extreme, right? Like because that's um that's about half second faster than he was running in the hundred, and so it it I don't know. It's just interesting to me. I I want to go back and look at that one now with the wind versus uh you know pulling with a belt different story <laughs> but uh yeah just that interesting stuff to me yeah it, it, and i think that with what jacobs is doing with the uh the trailer behind the car is perfect it's a great great it, a great session and and i wish we could do more of it you know yeah it's just a little more specialized you know it's probably it's a little more expensive to get that than you know just go out and have the wind at your back for sure <laughs> that quite yeah. is accessible yeah yeah Although I'm, I'm sure there's probably plenty of dads walking around with trailers they aren't using, you know, that could be, that could be built out. And, and, you know, I wouldn't be doing it with high school, but I certainly with the elite kids, you know, an electric cart that can get fast enough. And that would be a great, great training tool. Yeah. So, and if you're going to be competing with those guys that are using those tools and they're working, you better find a way. Do we either duplicate that tool or duplicate what the tool is doing or duplicate the tool? Take your pick because, you know, there's the old book. If it ain't broke, break it. Somebody's going to break it. Somebody's going to find a, a way to do it. And in this case, the relaxation that comes with taking the wind away. And I mean, it's sucking you along. That thing's just sucking him along mm-hmm. is what it's doing. And it's a, it's a, so I, yes, I really like the, the the use of it cool uh, it makes me think too about like yeah the the value of various overspeed tools as per a function of how much relaxation they can induce mm-hmm. it's like if you're getting pulled by a cord too fast it's that almost seems like something that your brain would be going in a little bit of a threat and it could like make you be a little actually more tense than what might be good for you relative to like the wind pushing you or not having wind resistance well you might remember that we we talked about it but in the with the 1080 we actually measure that and so when you're doing, looking at a 1080 readout, you can see how much force is being put into the ground when you do assisted. And if it gets over 40, we, we stop. We don't go any faster. That's just 40. We figured out 40 was about where it needs to be. And, and so if you're doing assisted speed or over speed, whichever, if you start getting a braking force that's greater than 40, you need to shut it down. And in women, it's less than that. So. So for uh, these last few questions, just got a few more here. Uh, why don't you, and, and this will be cool because you mentioned using strength training to hold people back a little bit uh, earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. So once you get in season or you're trying to go fast, uh, what are the key components that change for, for in-season strength for your groups? Uh, we just check the, the intensity stays high and the volume drops. Yeah, so it's not, uh, not terribly complicated. It's just, you know, n- now you start to, because if you're lifting, you're keeping the central nervous system basically suppressed. And, and so you start, you start coming off, you keep the drop, the volume down and you keep the intensity high. You use it to neurologically pump it up and uh, stop suppressing it. And, and now they're able to express the coordination and everything. Cause when they're lifting their coordination is going to be less than, and when they start to peak and you're lifting less until you're completely off lifting, for a very, very short amount of time, but now your coordination, your nerve, nervous system is is on, and 
you're ready to go. So you've you take away the suppression of your 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 CNS. Got it. Two questions left here for you, Randy. Joe Juice says, "How much of a premium do you put on strength development with underdeveloped or weaker athletes?" And and maybe I can tack on just a little bit. Is if an athlete is is weaker in the gym or from a muscular perspective, do you have them do any more? lifting than anyone else or or and or how does like playing to one's strengths fit in like if someone's really elastic playing to their elastic strengths if someone's naturally stronger playing to their stronger strengths and and those types of things so yeah it's it's you know it's a a great question and there's not a specific answer for that one it's because it's a really big it's a another big question because it depends on obviously age the elasticity the anatomical factors involved in that athlete training age so in general and i have i've got a kid right now who's really elastic and most of the chinese are very elastic because that's what they do a lot of they they do a lot of mild jump training a lot of moderate interval training so they get pretty elastic but they have no power from the force side so they never get to get power from the force they get power from the speed side but without producing force at high speeds. So, you know, you got to put them back. You just got to get them in the weight room. In the case of this particular kid I have right now, I actually put him in hypertrophy, which I really don't do very often with, with, with sprinters, but this kid needed it. And then he started to thrive because he was, he, what he needed was hypertrophy. And did I know he needed hypertrophy? I kind of guessed he did. But when we started looking at his, ability to, to to display power he was just, just we just couldn't do it and so we had to set we had to do if if, if you you look back on on just old research even you see that the, the first thing is still to try to create a little bit muscle diameter size change that size a little bit and and you do that for a short amount of time just to get that prepared to then get into the real training that's necessary to improve performance. So I don't shy away from it. I get them in the way and make them and get them stronger and more powerful. Got it. Yeah. It makes sense that, yeah, especially for like a, a, a really elastic athlete. I mean, muscle offers compression, muscle mass and tissue offers the opportunity for, you know, compression and pressure changes as well. And like, I always think that there's a lot of facets to how we work and with, with the hypertrophy too, like you were saying that you wouldn't do that for long. Like, I mean, obviously there comes a point where like, okay, you're, you have enough muscle. Like how, how would you assess like how long that individual is going to be doing that type of training? And then are there like markers you're looking at along the way from like a reactivity perspective or anything like that? Or is it not even that complicated in the way that you look at it? Yeah, it doesn't have to be that complicated. But, you know, if we are doing it, I would do one day a week over a three week cycle. We do two cycles. and. Uh, you know, it's not a steady diet of it. It's just you you substitute one training session in the weight mm-hmm. room with a little more hypertrophy stuff to try to get this kid to create a better cross-sectional area so he can express more force to go along with that great elasticity that he has. Yeah, just one day a week. That makes, yeah, it's almost like that minimal dose. Yeah. You know, not going to go crazy. I mean, three days a week bodybuilding splits, just one day a week for a few cycles. Yeah, yeah. All right. Last question. I still had a few more, but I think this will round it out here. So, Johan asks, 
gosh, this could be another Hulk show. <laughs> hamstring training and how to reduce hamstring injuries. Just some major principles that you look at when it comes to the whole hamstring world. Maybe if you can throw in your thoughts on Nordics there, that's like a hot button thing. So uh, we'll take that yeah. one. Too, hamstring and hamstring well, injury training. We tried Nordics more than once in my lifetime, and basically people got injured doing them. It's too much for a track athlete unless you're not doing hardly any running at all. You know, we used to use the glute ham gastroc rays, uh, which is essentially Nordics, but we do those, you know, a lot in the fall. One of the things that concerns me is all that stuff is slow, you know, and, and people talk about the hamstrings are isometric when they're doing this and that. And when, when you get the ground, you know, I use the Kaiser leg extent, leg curl mm. fast, really fast. I mean, a guy like Sue can put 80 kilos on there and he's producing, you know, 2000 Watts of power. Now when he started out, it was like 700 Watts of power. So we're doing it fast and it certainly takes care of the lower end. You can make a case that it doesn't take care of the upper end, but I do something else for the upper end of the, uh, of the, of the hamstrings. So, and, and that's kind of a myth anyways, but it's an easy thing to communicate. So, and, and we, we just, we rarely get hamstring injuries. I've had more in China than I've ever had before because everything they did was front side. You know, everything that they were doing, they weren't taking care of the hamstrings at all. Their hips were locked up. There's a lot of reasons why they were having so many trouble, so much trouble with their hamstrings. So if you're dealing with youth, yeah, do Nordics with body weight. I mean, of course, it's not a problem. I just wouldn't make a steady diet out of it with, with elites because mm -hmm. it's, uh, I think it, it sets them up for a little bit of injury given the, the intensity we work at. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, people have really, it's interesting. I, I've, I've heard a bunch of stuff. People are like, yeah, Nordics are amazing. And then I've heard a lot of stuff. No, they aren't. They aren't very good. And I, I mean, I think that you have different elements that you can look at on either side. But like you're saying, I, I had good success. My first year as a strength coach at Cal, my first couple of years, there was a really a sprinter who had been plagued with hamstring injuries and was pretty fast in high school, a 10, 6, 10, 7 guy in high school and ran like 10, 8 there his first two years. And then I got there and one, one of the strategies we actually found to be, and of course, yeah, right, who knows, like there's so many factors, right? Like you said, you're at like, like tight hips, you have tight shoulders, you don't rotate well enough, like there's you know, X, Y, Z, but we, we microdose Nordics, like one set of three a day or some, mm -hmm. something like that. And that actually worked for our understanding that actually worked pretty well. But I, I do, it makes me think like JB Marin talked about, like you get similar adaptations in the hamstrings from high speed sprinting as you do Nordics. Like they're both really intense things. So it just makes sense to me. Yeah. If you got someone who can run really fast and you're doing something in the weight room, that's also really intense. That's a lot of, that's a lot that's being demanded out of that muscle group. That's for sure. It, it is. And then if you start drilling, you know, if you use the activator belt and some other things, and you're drilling and you're purposely looking and trying to get them to get that glute involved in the hip extension to the ground. When that foot hits the ground, the forces on that hamstring are amazing, mm -hmm. you know? So you're getting a Nordic with every footstep. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a bent knee Nordic necessarily. Yeah. I think it would be help. Yeah. It's just would be helpful for, 
I know mm. I've changed in the sense like I don't have as much in the track programs I write and even a lot of general workout programs I write. I don't have as much hamstring or accessory hamstring as quite as I used to just because I have done, you know, the podcast and I've the understanding like of, yeah, you're getting this when you sprint and if the kinetic chain has a good like pattern to it, <laughs> you're getting good hamstring training just by going out and running and sprinting. Like that is hamstring training. So it's like, well, I want to then optimize the kinetic chain and just make sure. And the thought of like, yeah, just because I'm hitting the hamstrings more on top of the sprinting I'm doing, I just want to be careful. You know, it's not like um, it doesn't become a thing where I guess just just more is more. I'm trying to figure out a fancier term in my head, but I just think it's easy to pile yeah. on stuff. I mean, in the fall, we'll do, you know, weighted glute ham uh, eccentric drops. I mean, essentially a Nordic. But if that was the key for being fast and performance, Sue would have a hard time with 15 kilos and I would put my female long jumper on there and she's knocking out 35 kilos, like nothing. And the guys are just staring at her like, what are you made of? Because we can't do that. You know, and yet one could run 11.6, the other can run, you know, 10.0. I like it for injury prevention, but the guys are moving fast yeah. and powerfully you're getting a really nice injury prevention thing going on there. Use any of the drilling when your foot is hitting the ground. Uh, you're getting you're getting it there. And see, when I look at drilling, I don't necessarily look at drilling strictly technically. I look at drilling as, as, as creating the environment for all the small muscles and all the muscles to basically develop around the pattern of movement, around each joint's pattern of movement. It's necessary for max velocity. Yeah, that's, it's good stuff. It makes me think too, yeah, like about, um, like the hamstring, it's really, yeah, and I love the high velocity adaptation and just thinking about the hamstring is designed for speed. And so it makes, like you said with Sue versus the, the 11.6 runner, like who could crush it at the Nordics, whereas Sue might not be as good. Like it's, if it was just one-to-one like that, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, the, you know, I, I like what you're saying, with you treating the hamstring as a velocity muscle with the with the kaiser and realizing that it's it's meant for velocity at the end of the day like it's it, that, what it has to do in control a velocity and the end product you know it's 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 going to get injured in two places at ground contact or at apex of flexion on the front side where the lower leg is is you're, you're trying your hamstring is trying to deaccelerate the lower leg so we do exercises you know, let's say with the Kaiser FT or a cable machine where we're in full flexion and we're doing, you know, we're doing pulls, hamstring pulls, standing up on one leg and, you know, trying to strengthen and feel what that's going to feel like in a position that they're in. So there's a, there's a, we do do a lot of different hamstring exercises, but not one of them is is a huge part of our training. Got it. For people, um, this is probably complicated, like the first one, but maybe I'll, I'll leave with this is, is, you know, if someone didn't have a Kaiser leg curl type machine, I mean, are there any other fast, like general, like common hamstring exercises that people do? I mean, I've seen like reactive glute ham raises, things like that. Is there any other piece of yeah. equipment in the gym that you feel like just done at high velocity can offer some or elicit some similar type training effects? Um, hmm. Probably bands would do it. But you're you get the wrong strength curve in a band. Yeah, you know we've always done 
rolling the med ball down the legs and flicking it. And that's a pretty good one for young kids to do. Yeah, totally. You know, that's so you just roll it down the back of their legs and they flick it up. And so that's speed. And there's a little bit of force takes place at the end of that long lever. So that's, that's not easy doing med ball kicks, rear kicks standing. So you're standing up and you take a med ball and you basically pull it backwards with a straight leg. So you're getting that hamstring is getting an isometric contraction while it's, you know, the glutes moving it straight leg runs, I think are a great effective tool. And now with the oxygen, you add on a little bit of resistance to the bottom or, or whatever weight you just don't want to use the heavy weight, but whatever weight you need so that you're, you're creating stress way up at the high end of that lever. And when it hits the ground, one, it's accelerating to the ground. But then, too, when it hits the ground, you know, the, the, the muscles think is going to think, I'm still trying to contract to move this, but whoop, stop. I just, I just got stopped completely. And that's where, from a science standpoint, you start investigating active myosin and the sliding element theory. But then now, not now, but for a while, there's been also Titan as a tissue, which is helical of nature, which surrounds that. And that now becomes your elastic part of this. So a lot of people really want to learn more about that is really start looking up Titan and see what it does in, in the muscle cell. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, Randy. Yeah. You know, that, that med ball flick, I love that. I actually use that with swimmers. So I stopped working with uh, track a few years uh, into Cal and switched over to swim. And I use that all the time, the, the lying flick and then the standing flick, because you're know, kind of fitting with two, like the up kick and the down kick in the pool. But like, I remember yeah. one of the first times yeah. we did it in the weight room with the women's team, some girl after this, I always had a very like thorough catching the ball, the partner, because the partner needs to catch the ball when you're lying on your stomach and the person flicks it up. Anyways, this one girl, right. long story short, she flicked it and hit herself right in the head <laughs> and then ended up in the sports medicine room for at least a few minutes. She was fine. But as like, after that, I think I made a role where you had to like, stand over the other person instead of at their side or with that group at least but yeah (laughs) yeah i mean when you're when you're doing that the first time you place your hands in in the appropriate position because there's been few too many people who've been mildly damaged with that ball hitting them in certain anatomical areas that uh, are not meant to be hit you know so (laughs) but it's a great exercise it's an easy one to use and you can start them with a two kilo and do a three and then do a four you know for the bigger kids um, so yeah, I, I, I've always liked it and uh, I think it's pretty appropriate. Awesome. Well, good stuff, Randy. I, again, I, I had probably about 10 more questions, 15 more, but we've gone such a long time. I, I mean, and plus I don't help by asking all these, you know, different directions of each question, but I, I, I'm so thankful for the time that you spent with us before you're, you know, flying back out to China to, to get this in. And I'm sure everyone who asked the questions are really grateful as well. Well, hopefully, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to be specific and vague at the same time because the question is sort of there's only vague answers that you can give because you start you know there's you ask a question there can be a hundred ideas start running in your mind real quick but you're like oh what if this and what if that and you go I, I better not talk about that that because there's too many variables in some of these questions to answer them honestly. And I try to tell you what I was doing, and I hopefully that uh, was communicated good enough or well enough. And people can, they're welcome to email me. I'm going to be in two and a half weeks, three weeks of quarantine. So 
yeah, send me some questions. (laughs) I'm not going to have much to do for three weeks in China. Yeah, it sounds good. I'm sure people have plenty of questions to send you. So, and keep you busy in quarantine. (laughs) So, thanks again, Randy. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another show. If you enjoy this podcast series and what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a view on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to this podcast series on. It would really help us out. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.